Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. We are in John 20. We're going to finish out talking about the resurrection. And I want to challenge you guys with this question before we start. How much have you really, really looked at the resurrection? I mean, a lot of times, you know, we think about it Easter, we mention it some other times, but how much have you really, really looked at what the resurrection means, what it is? We have an example here of different levels of looking in the beginning of this chapter, don't we? Take a look at verse 1. It says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been moved away. And so she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, who's John, the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. And then in verse 3, we see Peter and John, and they're running to the tomb, right? And John mentions, uh, I ran a little faster, just so you know. And so they run to the tomb, and what happens is, is that John gets there first, and he just kind of peeks in, right? It says that he stooped, he looked in, he saw the linen cloth, but he didn't go in. Then Peter comes next, and he goes actually inside, and he looks around, and he sees the linen cloth, and he sees the covering that was over Jesus' face laying there, and then he goes out. And then what's really cool is John, in verse 8, it says he, that he finally goes in, he looks around, he really absorbs what happened in there, and believes. So there's three types of looking here. There's kind of a, a peeking in, there's kind of a going in and looking around, and then there's a really reflecting on it. There's three different types of looking Maybe some of you have been in church for a really long time, maybe all your lives, and all you've really done is peeked in. All you've really done is just kind of peeked into the tomb and thought a little bit about the resurrection here and there, but haven't really absorbed it. What's cool is that John gives us a neat example of someone who understood the resurrection only very superficially, but then later it began to really rock him, and he was never the same. How about you? Perhaps uh, you're in that boat. Perhaps you're in a place where you haven't really thought about what is the resurrection? What does it really mean? How can we know for sure that it happened? Have you really come in and look around? That's what we want to do this morning. We want to see, we want to really dig into the resurrection and really see for the first time. And I've been praying that that would be the case, that many of us would have that second John experience, the experience of really understanding the resurrection. And there's massive needs for this, guys, among us. There were massive needs in this chapter. But there's massive needs for this because, one, we're saved by looking. Do you guys realize that? We're saved by beholding Christ and all that he's done for us in his cross and resurrection and believing. We're not saved by doing. You guys realize that? A lot of times we get off track and we think we're saved by doing. You're saved by looking. You're saved by beholding. You're saved by trusting. You're saved by grasping by faith and taking hold of Jesus. And you know what, guys? We're also transformed by looking, aren't we? There's a cool passage in 2 Corinthians in chapter 3 and 4 where it talks about that we're transformed by beholding Christ. We see an example of different people and their problems in this chapter. Take a look at it. I mean, the disciples are in fear. It says they're behind locked doors for fear of the Jews. The disciples are in fear. Mary is weeping. You know, Mary is overcome by grief. You see Thomas is doubting. There's massive needs here to see Jesus resurrected. How about you? Have you come here in fear? Have you come here with doubts? Hey, have you come here with griefs? The cool thing is, guys, is that everybody in this chapter that beholds the risen Jesus was liberated. Do you need liberation this morning? Do you need transformation? Are there places in your heart where you're just stuck? Seeing Jesus raised from the dead will do that. And so I want to pray before we get started that God would do just that. Father, we, we ask you, Lord, 
to come. We ask you that you would come and show us a clearer picture than we've ever had before of the resurrected Jesus, Lord. Help us to understand um, what this means for who he is and what he's done and what we have to look forward to, Lord. We confess that we come to this place sinners in need of grace. We come to this place with doubts and griefs and fears, and we need to hear from you, our Father. We need you to bring conviction and faith and joy and courage to our hearts today, Lord. We need to see, Lord, we have a need to see the empty tomb and even more, Lord, to see the resurrected Jesus on display, crucified and died, but now risen. So we pray that you would help us, Lord. Take away our fear and grief and doubts and replace it with resurrection, courage, joy, and confidence. We pray you do this and even more, Lord, so that your glory, your perfections would be on display this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, it's really simple. We're going to look at three things. We're going to look at how Jesus conquers our doubts our griefs, and our fears through his resurrection. So that's what we're going to look at. So first, we're going to see how he conquers our doubts. We're going to start with Thomas. We're not going in order. And the reason is, is because Thomas deals with our doubts. Turns out that we need to actually believe in the resurrection for the resurrection to transform us. And Thomas was dealing with doubts about um, who Jesus is and, and what, whether he was really raised from the dead. We see that in, chapter, in verse 24. It says, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We've seen the Lord. But he said, Unless I see his, hand, unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my fingers into the marks of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. A lot of us call this guy what? Doubting Thomas. Not really fair. He did it once. I mean, you know, it's like, it's like living in a small town and you make that one mistake and never, nobody ever lets you live it up, right? Live it down. But he only really doubted once. And Thomas, from the other accounts we know, was a very loyal man. You look in chapter 11, when Lazarus, uh, Jesus was going to go raise Lazarus, he was gonna go, Jesus was going to go back to Jerusalem and they're like, hey, they want to kill you there. And Jesus is like, we're going. And you know what Thomas says? He says, let us go and die with him. Like, this is a loyal guy, a little bit pessimistic, but very loyal, okay? And so Thomas wasn't around when the other disciples saw Jesus. He actually had to spend an additional eight days in deep doubt. And maybe that's here, you here this morning. Maybe the Lord's allowed it a long period of doubt and questioning. And, um, but I'm praying that this would be the end of your eight-day experience of doubt. Thomas has heard that Jesus is alive, but he wants proof to believe it. He wants hard proof. And you know what's amazing is that Jesus is happy to give it to him. Take a look at verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came in and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your fingers here and see my hands and put, and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas wants proof and Jesus is happy to give it to him. Isn't that amazing? You know, one thing, too, is that Jesus is happy to give this to Thomas in love. One thing you can't see in your Bibles, in the Greek here, there's two different words for touch being used here. Thomas uses this word, balo, which means to thrust. It's kind of a more violent word. It's kind of an aggressive word. Jesus uses the word pharaoh, which is to, to touch, just to place your hand on. So G Thomas is actually being very aggressive and angry and frustrated when he's talking like this. And we can see it in his word, never, right? Lest I thrust my hand into his side, I will never believe. 
Okay? This is a frustrated man. This is a man that's, that's got lots of doubts, and he's angry, and he's, he's bothered. And Jesus responds with not that word, but a very soft word. Okay? The word that he responds with just says to place your hand to touch it. So Jesus responds to Thomas's angry frustration with gentle, loving answers. Isn't that awesome? You just love that about him? Guys, Jesus is a doubter-friendly Savior. And he's the only one I know of. I mean, if you look at other religions and stuff, when you doubt, you're the enemy, right? But with Jesus, when you doubt, he comes in, he comes in with gentle, even when your frustration and your, and, your, and your anger and things like that, Jesus responds gently with loving answers. Guys, Jesus is a doubter-friendly Savior. If you look at Jude 22, which is Jesus' brother, Jude, half-brother, he said this, he said, have mercy on those who doubt. He learned that from his brother, right? Have mercy on those who doubt. Jesus is willing to give Thomas all reasonable proof of the resurrection, and he'll give it to you too. Now, of course, you cannot stick your hands in his side and do those kinds of things because Jesus has ascended. This is two millennia later. Uh, It's not reasonable for us to expect that he's going to give us an encounter of sticking our hand in the holes of his wrists or in his side. But Jesus is willing to give you every reasonable evidence today. It's entirely reasonable, guys, for you to expect that there would be historical proof of the resurrection because it was a real historical event. And that historical proof is available to you if you will hear it. You can be certain about the resurrection. Guys, I've been a Christian a while, and I'll tell you what, I've been a Christian maybe almost 30 years, and there are a lot of things I'm not certain about. I have a lot of questions. I have a lot of things I don't understand. A lot of things, I don't know how they add up about the Bible and things like that. But you know what? There's one thing he wants us to be certain of, and that's that Jesus rose from the dead. He wants us to be certain. He's not leaving it uncertain. He wants us to know for certain that Jesus, after he was crucified and buried, rose on the third day. How can we be sure? Amazingly, guys, and I don't know if you've thought about this. Amazingly, we have four complementary written records of what happened from the first century. I don't think we think about that enough. Like, you have here in these four accounts, you have first century documentation of what happened. We shouldn't even have this. (laughs) You know what I mean? I mean, this is, you know, 2,000 years later, we have written, handed down documentation of what happened. Four complementary accounts of what happened. Written by either eyewitnesses, and in the case of Matthew or John, or people that had access and interviewed the eyewitnesses, in the case of Luke and Mark. This is amazing. And perhaps you have questions about it. And so I want, in the spirit of Jesus, Jesus' doubter-friendly Savior Jesus, I want to go through some questions people might have about these four accounts. So the first one might be, why these four? You know, you hear like around Easter and around Christmas, you start to hear about the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Judas, the Gospel of whoever else they found, right? Why aren't those included? And there's a very simple answer to that. These four are the only ones that are dated to the first century. Why is that important? We only take Gospels that were dated in the first century because we want eyewitness material. We want people that were actually there or interviewed people that were there. We don't want something like the Gospel of Thomas or Judas that was written late 2nd century or late 3rd century so that we don't even know, you know, really even who wrote it. I mean, certainly Thomas didn't write it, right? Thomas was not 200 years old at that point telling the story. Certainly Judas did not write it, right? (laughs) Two centuries later that he wrote his account after he died. No, probably not, you know? And so we take these because they're first century accountings. Some people might say, well, what if John and the gospel writers lied about these things? Now, keep in mind, guys, some of you might not be bothered by any of these questions. My wife is not bothered by these questions. I asked her. She's like, "Eh, none of it bothers me, okay? 
it bothers me, okay? So just, you know, go with me here. I want to show you some of the evidence for this, and I think it's an equipping thing. It's something that when you talk to people out there, or you talk to people in here that wrestle with doubts, like me, you will have something to assure them that these things are legitimate. But John and the gospel writers, you might think, well, maybe they were lying. Guys, if they were lying, they wouldn't have written this story. And I'll tell you why. They would never have written that Mary, a woman, was the first witness of the resurrected Jesus. Ever. Okay? Why wouldn't they do that? Women's testimony was not respected back then. It wasn't even admissible in a court of law. A woman could see a violent crime and not be able to give testimony to it. Okay? So they never would have written, you know, if you're going to just make up a story, you would add Peter, find him first, or John, find him first. But Mary's the first one to see the resurrected Jesus. Also, you've got to consider that John and these other guys, most of them, except for John, were killed for what they said. Okay? These people were killed because they wouldn't relent from saying that Jesus was raised from the dead. Okay? So you get to the point, like Peter being crucified upside down, he has an opportunity to just take back his testimony and things like that, and he won't. Guys, people die for lies all the time that they don't know are lies, but people do not die for something they know is a lie. Not huge groups of them like this. Okay? Um, Blaise Pascal, the famous mathematician, said, I believe those witnesses that get their throats cut. Right? These people were going to die for this. You could say, well, maybe the disciples just went to the wrong tomb and some have sold the body and they just assumed he's raised from the dead. We talk that way on Easter a lot of times, right? About the empty tomb. You might get the sense that, like, that's our proof. There's an empty tomb. That's not our proof, okay? The disciples are saying more than just they saw an empty tomb. They claim that they physically saw and handled him alive for 40 days. Okay, not a brief experience, but for 40 days. And on top of this, Peter, 50 days after the resurrection, in the same city, is proclaiming Jesus raised from the dead. All the enemies of the gospel have to do, and there were many, is produce his body, right? But people believed it. Thousands of people believed it just 50 days after it happened. You could say, well, what if the disciples, you know, they're overcome by grief, and they really badly wanted Jesus to be raised from the dead. Maybe they just had visions and hallucinations and thought he was alive. The problem with that is they didn't expect him to be raised from the dead. They were actually disbelieving. They weren't expecting it at all. The other thing, too, is they knew about visions and hallucinations and stuff like that, too. These are not foolish people. They know these things happen. What does Thomas say? I won't believe till I touch him. There were others like him. They had to handle him. They had to touch him. They didn't just go off proclaiming him raised from the dead because they had a vision. They handled him. Also, guys, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about there was one time when there were 500 people at once that interacted with the risen Jesus. Okay, now, people can have hallucinations, but you know what they don't do? Synchronize them. Okay? 500 people don't have the same hallucination together. Okay? That's complicated. You can't pull that off. It's never been known to happen. You could say, well, what if Jesus didn't really die? He just looked like he was dead on the cross and was later revived. This is a, a, a favorite of the Muslims and other people that say, you know, he looked like he was dead. And, you know, that happens. You know, people are, these days, they're putting the morgue, right? And then they, like, get up. They're like, whoo, whoops, we blew that one. Sorry. <laughs> we thought you dead. <laughs> um, the, the problem with that, guys, is that Roman soldiers know how to kill people. Okay? They do this professionally. Okay? The other problem with it is, is that if Jesus somehow survived the whippings and the beatings and the crucifixion, he would hardly be able three days later to hop out of the tomb and waltz around saying that he conquered death. He would look like death. Okay? He wouldn't be you know, running around. In one case, in, on the road to Emmaus, which is seven miles from Jerusalem, he, he interacted with some disciples there. Think about this. Think about crucifixion. You have a spike that goes through both feet. 
Then you're not put in ICU, you're thrown in a tomb, you come out, and then you what? You jog seven miles to Emmaus? Not going to happen, okay? He was shown to be well. Or you might say, you know, people back then, they just believed in resurrections, and they didn't demand a lot of proof like we do. Like, we're real smart, and we look for proof, and they, they didn't do that. And they were actually a lot more easily misled, those ancient people. Guys, they didn't believe in resurrections, okay? The Jews believed in one resurrection where all people would be raised at one time. They didn't believe in individual ones. They didn't believe that individuals came back from the dead. And the Greco-Roman culture this happened in hated the idea of a resurrection. And according to their philosophy, they didn't like the body. The body's evil. You want to escape from it. You guys have studied all that kind of stuff. And so for them to die and escape from this kind of earthly container was liberation, they would not have wanted a resurrection nor have been looking for it. They would have thought it impossible. So for both the Jews and the Gentiles, they would have thought that the resurrection was inconceivable. You can't ever use that word anymore, can you? Use the princess bride. But um, they would have no easier time believing it than we do. And the other thing too, guys, and let's just be real on this. It's not cool to say that people that lived a long time ago were more gullible and less intelligent than us. You just realize that? Have you ever thought that, though? I've thought that. What's the cutoff? Like, people in the 1800s, they're as smart as we are. But then, you know, you get further back and you start to think, those people were, you know, kind of dumb. And superstition, just didn't understand things. Guys, you know, it's pretty arrogant, actually, of us to think of ancient people as somehow being less intelligent or more gullible than we are. Right? Think about, like, Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, morons, Right? Just, you know, people that we can't trust, they didn't, they didn't know anything, they didn't really think things through. No. Ancient people were no less, um, easy, they weren't more easily uh, deceived than us. You know what C.S. Lewis calls that? He calls it chronological snobbery, which means that you think of people that were from a long time ago as somehow you're better than them. And so, guys, what do we have here? We have the testimony of first century eyewitnesses that Jesus, after being dead for three days, came back to life again and spent 40 days with them. And I want you guys to really think about this because I have clients, I'm a horse vet, and I have clients that I've talked to about the resurrection. There was this one guy, Bob, he was so funny. So um, I was talking to him, and he was kind of bemoaning, like, that Christmas has been, you know, kind of co-opted, and, you know, it's become commercial. And, and, and I was talking to him about that, and I was talking to him about Easter. And this is a guy that doesn't go to church, doesn't really show any evidence of being a Christian. And I said, well, Bob, like, do you believe Jesus was raised from the dead? And he goes, absolutely. And I'm like, are you sure? <laughs> Because what we're talking about, guys, is what we're talking about is that Jesus, on that Friday, he dies that afternoon, right? He says, it is finished. We talked about two weeks ago. He dies. They, they put a spear in his side, right? Blood and water comes out, probably speared his pericardium around his heart. And then they take him down from there, right? And they, they throw him in a tomb, and they just leave him in there till Sunday, right? And so he's in there on Friday night, and he's a dead body, He's a dead body. Within a few hours, he's rigor mortis. He's like any other dead body. He's not a glorified dead body. He's a regular dead body, okay? His blood starts to coagulate in his, in his um, veins and arteries. His eyes become sunken. They go, go through all the same processes that any other dead body would. He's a dead body. If you would have gone in there on Saturday morning, dead body, right? Assumes room temperature. Probably a start to get to the point where he'd start to stink on, Saturday, on Sunday morning. And then what happens? Sometime on Sunday morning, his heart started to beat again. And his blood started to, you know, mix again and swirl within his body. And his skin started to get its color back again. You know, he was that pale, 
you know, dead look, right? And then, you know, maybe a toe twitched or a finger twitched, and he opened his eyes, and then he gasps for the first time in three days, and then he probably cracks more than me, you know, when he gets up, gets up off that bench, stands up, takes a stretch, and strolls out. Like, you believe that? There's good reason to believe that, guys. There's good reason, historical reason to believe that happened. The resurrection conquers our doubts. And if you guys have other questions about that, let me know, because what I just did, I've done in like an hour and a half before, too. I wasn't going to do that this morning. But please ask me. How does Thomas respond? Look at verse 28. This is Thomas, who saw him dead and mangled on the cross, and he's seeing him for the first time alive in front of him. And Jesus comes, and he says, peace. He says, go ahead and handle me. Touch these wounds. And what does he say? My Lord and my God. Thomas sees the resurrection as clear proof that Jesus is God. Isn't that great? And, and what does Jesus say in response? Because a lot of the cults and things like that will say, you know, no, 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 he's not God. How does Jesus respond to be call, being called God? What does he say? Verse 29, Jesus says to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have, seen, have not seen and yet believe. What does he say? Yeah, Thomas, you got it right. This is what I've been trying to show you all along. I've been trying to show you that I'm God in the flesh. And John has been trying to show us that too. We look at the very beginning. Remember back this time of year, last year, when we're in the very beginning of John. He said, and the word was with God, and the word was God, dropping down to verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He starts with showing us that Jesus is God in the flesh, and then he ends the book here with showing us that God, Jesus is God in the flesh and that he is the one we must believe in for eternal life. Take a look at verse 30. John says this, he says, Now Jesus did many other things in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, that he's, he's God, and that you, may believe, that you may believe and have life in his name. Guys, the resurrection conquers our doubts. Secondly, the resurrection conquers our, fear, our grief. For, for grief, we're going to look at Mary. Take a look at verse 11. She was the first to see that the stone was rolled away. She hasn't yet seen the resurrected Jesus. She runs. She gets uh, P Peter and John to, to come and check it out. They look and they leave. They don't see the resurrected Jesus, but they see the empty tomb. But then Mary lingers around that empty tomb in grief. Look at verse 11. Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where Jesus' body had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Think about her situation. It's bad enough, guys, that the most important man in her life had been taken from her in such a merciless and shameful way. This is the most kind of shameful death, most painful death, merciless death, taken from her. And the thing that she's thinking, and especially in that ancient culture, would be, at least I could give him a decent burial. You know, at least I could try and, like, make things somewhat right by giving him the kind of burial that he deserves. And so she has this plan to bring all the preparations and the wrappings and things like that that they would do in that time. And then she comes, and the body's gone. She doesn't know what's happening here. She probably assumes that somebody took it and they're going to kind of parade it around town. That happens. I was talking to a guy recently and he was saying in some, you know, heavy gang areas, they guard that burial site 
for days after a funeral because rival gangs will take, take the body and prop it up in their mother's yard or drag it around town to disgrace the body and the family. Is that what's going to happen here? Like after all we've been to, can't can we just have the dignity of putting him to rest in some sort of honor? Verse 14, having said this, she turned and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be a gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father, but go and tell my brothers and say to them, I have ascended to my father. I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Verse 18. Mary Magdalene went and announced that to the disciples and said, I have seen the Lord. Guys, when you're in a situation like Mary and you've had grief piled upon grief, piled upon grief, I mean, Marcel was talking about Job last week. You just think about Job's situation. Like, one bad thing happens and it says, while that messenger that told him the bad news was still there, another one came in. Told him some more bad news, you know. You know, your animals have been destroyed. Your kids have been killed. It was one thing right after another. When you're in that situation where grief is being piled upon grief to where you just think life is just some sort of absurd joke, right? What the resurrection comes in and says, this is not the end and the best is yet to come. Think about the reversal she had there. Think about that emotional reversal she just had. She's seeing Jesus alive. You guys remember what um, Sam said to Gandalf in Lord of the Rings when when he realized that Gandalf was alive. I love it. This is what he said. He said, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought that I was dead myself. And then he says this to Gandalf. He says, is everything sad going to come untrue? Isn't that great? Is everything sad going to come untrue? Like if this happened, is everything going to be better? Guys, the resurrection tells us that everything sad is going to come untrue. Isn't that awesome? If God can fix the death of Jesus, he can and he will fix everything. You guys realize that the New Testament says that the resurrection and restoration of Jesus' body was the first step in a process that he's doing. First he resurrects Jesus, later he's going to resurrect our bodies and make them new, and then he's going to resurrect and restore this entire world. Everything sad is going to come untrue for those who trust in Jesus. The resurrection, guys, conquers our grief. And you know what heaven's going to be like? I think it's really important that we remind ourselves of this. A lot of us have, and I mentioned this a bunch of times, but I feel like I could mention every Sunday. A lot of us think about heaven in a cultural way, that it's kind of a light blue background, white puffy clouds. You're kind of walking through it, and it's kind of a mist. You can't see your feet. There's some harping going on. Not my favorite instrument. Sorry if anybody plays that. Um, and then there's like maybe an arch, and there's St. Peter. He's at a desk. The arch doesn't seem to go anywhere. You know, it's this image, right, that we have in comic strips and stuff. Guys, that is not what heaven's going to be like. What the New Testament talks about, especially the last two chapters, is that one day heaven's going to invade this world and make it new. Take a listen to what the prophet Isaiah said about heaven when it comes fully on earth. He said this in, in uh, Isaiah 27.6. He says, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people, so it's all cultures, all race, all people, will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, and aged wine well refined. The picture that Jesus has here of heaven 
is that it's a feast in a new world. It's a resurrected life in a resurrected world. And guys, the host of that feast has made everything ready by his death and resurrection. Guys, when we're there, we're going to be able to, it's going to make all things right. You know, he says he wipes away every tear and stuff like that. When we see him and we see what he's been up to in all this, it's going to make everything right. Guys, we are going to be able to laugh off even the biggest hardships and pains we faced here. It's going to make everything new. The resurrection conquers our doubts, conquers our griefs. Thirdly, this one will be quick. The resurrection conquers our fears. You guys remember where the disciples were when Jesus appeared to them? Behind locked doors. It says why, too. It says for fear of the Jews. Look at verse 19. On the, ev- on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Guys, they're immobilized in fear. Not unlike a lot of Christians are today. Okay? Not unlike a lot of disciples, maybe even this room, are like today. You know, you look at the world, you're fearful of the things that are out there. You're either in a bunker or a bubble. I guess you bunker and you put your kids in a bubble. But there's, there, we're in fear, guys, hiding out in the world. We're like these disciples. But look at what Jesus does. Look at verse 19, second half. Jesus came to them and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them, again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. Guys, Jesus conquers our fears by showing us his resurrection. Can you imagine? Can you imagine you're like in this locked area, you're so afraid, you're like, we thought the kingdom was coming, we thought this was our king, he just got mangled and thrown away, we don't know what's going to happen, and then Jesus pops in and he's like, peace. Then he'd be blown away, right? That word peace is the word shalom that he would have said. He would have said shalom, which means it's a sense of well-being. It's this deep sense of well-being that like everything's in the right place and everything's going to be great. And he says, you can feel that way now. He says, seeing him raised from the dead gave him that deep peace, that deep shalom that they can't lose. Jesus says, I'm fine. And you're going to be more than fine. And I have a mission for you. You know, we need to get you out of this locked building. Jesus is showing us, guys, that the opposite of fear isn't just peace, it's mission. Did you guys know that? The opposite of fear for Jesus in this passage is mission. The only way that we can know for sure that the resurrection's conquered our fears is if it sends us out on mission to tell others. That's how we know. And guys, just to wrap it up, that's what we've been doing here. That's what we've been doing here for about a year. And we'd ask you, some of you are newer, some of you just been around a little while, we'd ask you to join us. We're going to be moving into our second year in a couple of weeks, and we'd ask you to join us by receiving Jesus. If you don't know Christ this morning, and you don't know that everything that's sad is going to be made untrue in your life, you need to come to Christ who forgive you of your sins, he'll give you a new life in him, he'll give you his Holy Spirit, he'll make you new. We want to ask you to join us by taking communion. We're going to take communion in just a second. We want to ask you to join us by getting baptized. In a couple weeks, we're going to have baptism. And if you've not been baptized as a believer, talk to me. Let's get you baptized. Let's talk about what baptism is, and we're going to do it as a, as a family. We want to ask you to join us by, um, by making disciples in this community. We had a cool meeting just this last Wednesday, a group of guys, and we are just talking about discipleship and forming like little bands of believers, you know, that would text each other and keep each other accountable, coach each other, encourage each other, give biblical perspective. It's not a big program. It's something real simple, but making disciples. Guys, the best is yet to come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. 
that you're going to make all sad things come untrue for your people. And Lord, I know in a group this size, and I even know specific people that came in here crippled by grief, crippled by fear, crippled by doubts. And Lord, I thank you that you've shown us the risen Christ. And seeing him makes everything better. We just thank you for that, Lord. We thank you that it didn't end with him crucified. You've been listening to the weekly podcast of the Menifee Campus of Covenant Grace Church. If you'd like to know more about Covenant Grace Church, visit us online at covgrace.org.